Well, amen. Let's give Jesus a hand clap. Hallelujah. Go ahead and have a seat. Tell your neighbor it's going to be a great 2014. Amen. You got your Bibles? Hold them up. Shake them a little bit. Make the bookstores glad and the devil mad. Let's chop off some devil's heads. Na, 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 na. <laughs> At least one. Repeat after me. This Bible has the power to change my life, to change my city. I can do what this Bible says I can do. I'll be a history maker and a world shaker. This Bible's a truth detector, a sin deflector, a faith inflator. I'm going to read it now. I'm going to read it later. If you believe that, give Jesus a shout and a hand clap. Amen. Message entitled, Don't Look Back. Let's say that together. Don't look back. Luke 9, 57 to 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to them, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. One more time on that last one. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity to share your word, and I pray you'll help me to kind of stay out of your way, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, this word will go forth, not come back void. It'll accomplish what it was sent to do, and Lord, it'll speak to whatever age is here. Lord, whether they're 8 or 80, Lord, whether they're not a Christian or they've been a Christian a long time, Holy Spirit, you have that ability to communicate what's needed right to our hearts, and even between the lines of this message, you can communicate, and we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I want to take this scripture and kind of break it down a little bit. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. And I want to start at the end of that and work our way forward because we're talking about the kingdom. Okay, we need to understand about the kingdom before you can even understand this verse. And so you look at the start of this chapter in Luke 9. This is what Jesus is saying. He called his 12 disciples together, gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Two simple things. Heal the sick, preach the kingdom of God. Jesus would always go about preaching the kingdom of God. He emphasized this thing called the kingdom of God, so it must be very important. Matter of fact, I use that in our Bible verse for our offering, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So how can we seek something we don't know something about? We need to know and understand about the kingdom of God. And in Luke 9, in the middle of that chapter, he says, But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, yes, we're talking about eternity. But right here it says some people are going to see this kingdom before they even died. So there's something more to this thing called the kingdom. In John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. So you're not even going to be able to see, perceive, or enter into this thing called the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Have Jesus your Lord and Savior. And what I noticed in my life, it started April 14, 1984. I said a prayer to ask Christ into my life. And at that point, I was born again. 
and I begin to perceive this kingdom because the one thing about entering into the kingdom, if you enter into the kingdom, you're going to change. I don't even know if you can enter into the kingdom without changing. Now, I'm also sensitive to those that were raised in church and, and have followed the Lord all their life. You might not see the great change, but your life should be different than the rest of the world without question. There needs to be a change because it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Now, Luke 6, 20, this is the, the famous Sermon on the Mount. He lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom. See, the message of the kingdom was proclaimed to the poor because the poor suffer the most. In the absence of God's reign, they are the ones that have to deal with more oppression, especially by worldly powers. They endure the greatest loss when marginalized or cast out of fellowship. They're the first to bear the effects of sin and death. And Jesus came to preach the good news to the poor. And a church that's not reaching the poor really has to evaluate some things or reevaluate some things. So, yes, there's a kingdom of God that I believe is called eternity. But listen to this. I believe there's a kingdom of God you can walk in today, right now, 1 Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Luke 17, 21, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So this thing, yes, there's a kingdom of God. We're talking about eternity. I believe there's a kingdom of God when Jesus comes back in these latter days. He's going to establish his kingdom. There's going to be a thousand-year reign called the millennial reign, and he'll, his kingdom will be established there. But I believe there's a kingdom right now we can walk in of signs, wonders, and miracles that we need to enter in even press in more quickly because the way the world is and where we're at right now, especially in the United States, there needs to be some people that really understand the kingdom and walk in it, walk in and operate it financially. I believe there's people, God raising up people who understand this in their finances so he can release finances to reach more people for the gospel. I believe there's people, and it doesn't matter your age on this thing. I mean, there's children going to operate in this. They'll lay hands on the sick and see them recover. I believe we're moving into that time. And it's really important, and it's, it's serious, because you think about that, the story where Jesus is talking about the talents. He gave one man ten talents, and he worked those talents, whether they're natural abilities, finances, whatever, but he produced ten more. Jesus said, well done, good and faithful service. servant. And he said, I will make you ruler over ten cities. So somehow in this millennial reign, there's going to be people in here based on what we've done with our talents that will rule over cities. And then he gave one five, and he produced five more, and he said, well done. But that one that had one talent and just hid it and just buried it in the ground, it wasn't just, oh, you didn't do very good. It was, you, you don't even enter the kingdom. You go to the place where there's gnashing of teeth. I mean, it was a serious, serious thing about not using his talents. And it's kind of a challenge for us. Man, this 2014, God has given us some talents. And it's stop, you know, let's have no regrets. And say, well, because of my past, I can't do anything for God. Or because I'm struggling. I'm telling you, just start doing something for God. Because you have more knowledge than most people out there in the world. There's something you can do. Don't let the enemy see you have to measure up to a certain amount. I'm telling you, when I start serving God, that's when my lifestyle starts lining up better than when I'm just sitting on the couch not doing anything. Hallelujah. So I want to ask you something. We're talking about the kingdom. He said, are you fit for the kingdom? What does that mean? Are you in shape? Do you qualify? Do you meet the standards? Are you fit to operate in the kingdom? Are you fit to enter the kingdom? Well, let's just bring it back down to earthly level here. How many in here are fit to play with the Dallas Cowboys? <laughs> 
maybe 90%? We go get some of the kids out of the kids' ministry right now? No. I mean, they're great athletes. We've had some injuries, struggling a little bit. But here's the point I want to make. Later in my football career, I decided to go after it one more time, and I went to a free agent cow, uh, tryout with the Cowboys. And I went there, well over 500 uh, people showed up. We sit up in the stands of the old stadium. And I remember one guy in particular, he wore a uh, wife beater tank top, had some cutoffs that were all frayed about, real short cutoffs, all frayed, and no shoes, just in his bare feet and a little sack lunch. And maybe weighed a buck 29. And he was going to play with the Dallas Cowboys. And he, that's why he was there. And I remember standing up, and they had us all stand up, go to the aisle. We walked down one by one. They had a, several of them. They had scales with the thing that would measure your height, like the nurse had. We'd walk down. What position are you playing? They'd, they'd make a little note. They'd weigh you and measure. And at that point, only less than 100 made it past there onto the field. They basically, no, you don't qualify. No, you don't fit our system. You don't fit into our standards. And they were gone. And then we went on the field, did some agility drills, and then it was down to 30 of us. And then we ran a thing called the 40-yard dash. And we were running them, and I ran mine. And, I, and after I ran, I turned around. I know the guy's kind of stopped, look at his clock again, makes a few notes, calls another coach over. And we just, he just stops everything, and we have a little conversation with that other coach. He asked me a few questions, but he asked this question. He said, how old are you? I said, oh, I thought so. <laughs> you know, I tried dog ear. You know, he was not smiling. He was looking at me, and I finally said, yeah, it, was, it was in the 30s, maybe 34. And he said, well, I appreciate you coming here today, but we won't need your services. Basically, you're too old to fit into our organization. We want somebody young. We can train. We can mold. You have to have a certain, you know, I didn't fit all the qualifications to be able to be a part of that. And I kind of wonder, is there a difference from being a Christian and being fit for the kingdom of God? Christian is a pretty loose term. As a matter of fact, it's a self-imposed title we have when we say, well, I joined a church. I'm a Christian. I got baptized. I'm a Christian. Or I gave a little bit to missions. I'm, or I do more good than most people, so I'm a Christian. But are you fit for the kingdom? It should be, are you a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because when it comes down to the wire and that trumpet sounds, I mean, those that are going up are going to be ones that are following him. Do you know what an armchair quarterback is? Armchair quarterback, you know, they watch the football game. They got all these opinions. Maybe they never played football, uh, but maybe they did. Maybe they're a pretty good athlete in high school. But now they're watching a football game, and they'd have a hard time getting to the refrigerator and back to the TV without taking a little break and catching their wind. But you know what the definition of an armchair quarterback? It's a person who offers advice or an opinion on something in which they have no expertise or involvement. I want you to think about that in terms of Christianity. No expertise or involvement. It was amazing how many armchair Christians came out on the Internet when we had the A&E Duck Dynasty thing happen. I mean, you can find out right then a lot about how much they know about Christianity. And whatever your opinion is on that, just look what it, this is one of the scriptures that have been tossed around. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's not a lot of room for interpretation. Some scriptures are, well, this means, I mean, that's pretty much what it says right there. It says it. And it's not just a standalone scripture. 
I mean, it's reemphasized in the Old Testament several times in the New Testament, Revelation, and in Galatians, it actually has a longer list of people who continue in these things who aren't fit for the kingdom of God. But here's some good news. That very verse I read, when you go to verse 11, it says, and such were some of you. Such were some of us. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. So this is not a verse that condemns you. It's a verse that there is hope. But I kind of said a prayer one time, more like fire insurance, but I just didn't give God my heart. I just kept doing my same old thing. And that was the worst years of my life. Those couple years where I was trying to, uh, you know, pretending to be a Christian in a sense and not really following him. And when I just let go of things and start following him, I'm telling you, I'm, it's not that there's a, a battle or anything. There is because there's an enemy out there. But I'm telling you, it's a lot more exciting. And you see a lot more reward when you begin to follow him like that. So we're talking about looking back. Are you fit for the, does your lifestyle measure up? I'm not saying you're perfect, but has there been a change? Are you born again? Are you a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Let's talk about looking back. The Pharisees are asking Jesus in this chapter we're talking about in Luke 17 about the kingdom of God. When's it going to come? First he talked about Noah, how it's going to be sudden. Like a flood, all of a sudden, boom. A lot of people were lost, but just his family was saved, those that listened. Verse 28. Likewise, it is, was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank. They bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he was on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. It's a picture of the end times. Jesus is going to come back. There could be two people sitting in this church. Boom, one's gone, the other's not. But I also believe it's not just an end time thing. It's a story about right now that remember Lot's wife because some people are holding on to their life right now, and because you're holding on to it, you're going to lose it. And that's the, that was the challenge for me. I didn't want to let go. I didn't, and then there was always those voices, you're just going to be a Jesus freak if you do that. You're just going to be part of the God squad. You know, you're going to, it's going to, all these lies that the enemy has. You know what I gave up? I gave up dirt for diamonds. I gave up rags for riches. Don't let the enemy lie to you. It's worth serving God. It really is. So the only thing we know about Lot's wife is she was married to Lot. She looked back, and she was turned into what? A pillar of salt. That's all we know about that story. And it's kind of understandable to a degree. I mean, that was their home. They lived there quite a while. I mean, there's a good chance they were part of the country club. He probably played on the softball team. She was part of the community theater. They'd have neighborhood block parties at their house. You know, so they were really, they had a lot of invested there. But for some reason, and, and the whole family was dragging their feet, even trying to leave. An angel had to come grab him by the hand and lead him out of the city. But for one reason or another, Lot's wife took a look back and received the same judgment that that whole city received. I mean, where the Dead Sea's at, where that happened, 1,300 feet below sea level, nothing but sulfur and, and nothing grows there. And she turned into a sarcophagus of sodium chloride, covered with the same thing that covered that city. Now, here's kind of an interesting question. Was she punished because she took the look or why she took the look? 
Was it a glance of regret or a longing look that she wanted to go back? See, a glance of regret has a seed of repentance. See, when I think back of my old life at college, it's with regret. I was an influencer. Man, I was influencing in a very negative way. And I regret some of these people, what I left, what they remember about me, when it could have been so much more positive. And did she look back with a look of regret and think, oh, my gosh, I wish I would have said more to those people in Sodom about their lifestyle. You know, right now, we can't mention but much about lifestyles that don't ma ma match up with the cross. Our government's even imposing different things on us. Hard telling what it was like in the days of Sodom. It was terrible, terrible in that place. So bad that God had to just finally just wipe it out. And you wonder what the government was doing there. Were they saying, okay, you don't talk about this kind of lifestyle or that kind of lifestyle anymore. And maybe, you know, they would have people over the house, but they would think, man, I don't dare get into this conversation. You know, we'll just, and she might have had regrets, but it didn't look like that. She had, a, she took a longing look. As a matter of fact, it's better translated, look back into a longing look. For some reason, she didn't want to leave. She didn't trust God to where they were going and for some reason wanted to go back. You know, when Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage, they begin to want to go back. See, the trouble, with, the trouble with nostalgia, when you look back, it's a challenge to our life of faith because it's usually distorted. Our look back to the past is usually distorted. I mean, there's so many, here's people say, man, I just wish I'd go back to high school. Really? You really want to go back to high school? Or what about those glory days in college? Man, if I could, you know, are you sure you want to go back to those days? Now, in college, you take your first test in college, you want to go back to high school where you didn't have to study or do anything. But in a general way, when you look back, it has a way of distorting things. I mean, first of all, the children of Israel, they're on a long, hard journey across the wilderness to the promised land. Life was tough, so they started to get very nostalgic. They started to look back to the good old days in Egypt. You know what it says in Numbers 11:5? They said, we remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. There's nothing here except this manna to look at. Somehow they conveniently forgot in their looking back that they were slaves. They were being brutalized by the Egyptian taskmasters. How did that slip their mind all of a sudden? But you know our early church fathers used the story of the Exodus as a metaphor to our Christian life. How we go from slave slavery and sin to freedom in Christ and how when things get tough we kind of want to go back to our old lifestyle you know we kind of hit a wall and, oh man I don't know if it's worth it let me tell you it's worth it it's worth it Fred Harris is it worth it been serving the Lord most all his life it's worth it I tell you so did Lot's wife possibly get turned into a pillar of salt because she failed to be the salt of the earth I mean, think of the influence she probably could have made in that city, and maybe she had regrets. I don't know. But sometimes I wonder, are we really being, because God makes a pretty strong statement, when the salt loses its ability to flavor, it's tossed in the trash heap. Listen to what it says in a book called Go the Distance by Ed Rowell. It says there's two types of pain in life, the pain of self-discipline, which is always eased by accomplishment, and the pain of regret, which aches within us until we die. Did you catch that? See, I don't want to be here the same time next year, 2014, and have any regrets. I want to make sure, and I'm telling you, you think this message is a little tough? I'm not even done yet. And you only have to listen to it once. i got to listen to it three times. But I want it to challenge me.
I want to come in. I want to come out of this next year and look back and say, man, I accomplished more than I did in thir- 2013. I mean, the Lord was able to lead me more. Has anybody heard of a guy by the name of Mikhail Kalishnikov? I say that name different every time I say it. But he's the creator of the famous AK-47 assault rifle. He just died at the age of 94 back just a few days ago on April 23rd. And he invented this gun in 1947. And in 1949, it became the main weapon of the Russian military. And they produced in about 50 years 100 million of these rifles that would shoot 400 rounds a minute were fairly easy to maintain. And out of all those 100 million made, he did not get one cent for being the inventor. It all went to the Russian government. But he, he did an interview in, when he was 85 years old with a German newspaper. He said, I'm proud of the rifle, but he also told them he had some regrets about his invention. I would have preferred to invent something which helps people and makes life easier for farmers. A lawnmower, for example. See, an AK-47, as you know, is the primary choice of weapon for insurgents and terrorists around the world. And how could a lawnmower make that kind of impact? It wouldn't make an impact like that. And that's just the point. He wished he wouldn't have made such a negative impact. And he wished he'd have done something more positive. You know, when we think about the evil things we've done, we should allow our regret to lead us to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You've got to remember, repentance is a gift from God. So now let's talk about putting your hand to the plow. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. What does it mean, put your hand to the plow? First of all, what's a plow? It's your ministry. It's what God has called you to do with your life. It represents your ability to influence the world and bring influence and uh, bring forth his kingdom. It means to serve God. Putting your hand to the plow involves certain things, just like becoming a Christian involves certain things. It requires skills. You need to learn how to use the plow. You need to learn how to get the oxen to move. And unless you know how to use the plow, nothing's going to happen. In the same way, a Christian has to learn how to serve God. And the best way to do that is to get into the Word of God. Sink your teeth into the Word of God. Because that's where you learn how to serve God. You know, I play with the Bears. We had a playbook I bet was that thick. Heavy, big playbook. Everything in it. If you left it lay around and somebody found it, you'd get fined at least $200. If you'd lose it, $500 to $1,000 you'd get fined. I mean, it was to be a part of your life because you had to learn that playbook because any situation that come up, if they called a certain play, you needed to know where to go. If they ran a certain offense and you were on defense, you knew if this guy blocked down, they're going to run right up there and you had to step in there. It, it helped you be successful. This thing called the Bible is not a book to spoil your fun. It's a book to help you be successful if you just do what it says to do. Now, you think back in those days, they were, when they pulled with a plow, they pulled with a number of oxen. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings 19.19, we read where Elisha was plowing behind 12 pair of oxen. That must have been one big plow he was pulling to have that many oxen. That much horsepower, a big heavy plow. But here's the thing we need to realize. We don't have the strength to pull the plow, any size plow. We're just to be behind. It's the power of God. It's God in your life that can pull that plow. You just got to follow him. It's not your own strength. God provides the power. And you think about a, a plow, first of all, what does it look like? What does it do to the soil? Like there's kind of the basic plow we think of. It turns up the soil. But back in the earlier days, they even had probably a simpler plow. 
they got another picture up there. It's kind of like a cross. See the way this cross, this beam would go across the animal and the other one down in the ground and something on the end of there to tear up the soil? Isn't that something how Jesus would use analogies that they were familiar with? A cross. So think about that when we're talking about this plowing for a minute. First of all, what does a plow do? It causes the ground to turn over. Uh, and here's the other thing I think about. You know, I always would think, you know, we're supposed to pick up our cross daily and follow him. And we think about this big, heavy cross, maybe more like that one. Oh, i got to serve you, Jesus. Oh, my gosh. It's just such a hard life being a Christian. Oh, man, it's such a struggle. Man, I can't have any fun anymore. Oh, it's just so... I mean, that is not what it means. It means pick up your cross, and I just follow him. It's not this big, heavy thing. You just got to follow him wherever he goes. So what does the plow do? It turns the ground up. It turns the soil over. Everything is turned upside down. What did they say about the apostles in Acts 17? Aren't these the guys who turned the world upside down? They were turning the political system upside down, everything. They were stirring things up. Therefore, when we live the kind of life which we're called, we'll leave a mark in this world. Our cross-centered life, we'll be turning everything upside down. See, if you sow seed without plowing the field first, nothing's going to grow because the soil's too hard. The seed can't penetrate the soil. In the same way, the kind of life we live by being a committed to Christ, it what, that's what makes a mark on a non-Christian. A verbal profession of faith isn't going to always do it. You make an impression on a non-Christian when you live the life of the cross, when you live the sacrificial life, the Christ-centered life. Our life must be like a plow that goes through the hearts of non-Christians, turning over the hard, stony ground. In this way, the heart can become receptive to the Word of God. Then somebody else can come along and sow the seed. Now listen to what a man by the name, a doctor, by the name of Yives I Bang Cheng says. Long name. We need to realize that in plowing through someone's life, living the Christ life like, we may upset a lot of people. They may think we are too extreme, too single-minded, too obsessed with the idea of plowing a straight furrow right through, refusing to turn to the left or the right, but that's okay. Remember, no plow has ever done its job that did not upset all the ground underneath. Christians should not be afraid of upsetting people for the glory of God. When you serve the Lord, you may upset your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your friends. They may all be angry with you. But keep in mind, unless they are upset, they may never be open to God's Word. They may never come to the Lord. Hmm. There's a man by the name of John Bramlett that I personally knew. He did one of our chapel services before a football game. He was known as the meanest man in the NFL. The Raging Bull, John Bramlett. I just noticed in a newspaper or a magazine that he's got a movie coming out. It's called Taming the, Rangy, the Raging Bull, which I'm real interested in seeing. Because this guy was the meanest guy in football. I mean, a total drunk after the games or, and getting fights every game, getting thrown. I don't know how, he's thrown in how many jails all over the United States, thrown in jail. And he, but his wife was a godly woman. She'd pray for him. He'd drive home at night. The car maybe hit the front shrubs in the yard, and he'd be passed down in it. And whenever he'd get up, he'd put on his shoes. He'd feel something in him. There'd be a scripture in there. God loves you. And there'd be some scripture. He'd open a book. There'd be a scripture in it. He'd go to his bottle of whiskey, taped on it would be a scripture. She'd anoint his oil, uh, oil on his pillow. I mean, just constantly, but always saying, God loves you. But then one time he came out of a bar, he got in his car, and on the steering wheel in big letters, God loves you, 
but he's definitely going to get you. God loves you out there, but some of you, he's going to get you because he loves you that much. Amen? You know, why, first of all, when we talk about putting your hands across and not looking back, when you, break, when you look at the Greek, it's actually a word that is a continuous action word. It says, if anyone puts his hands and keeps looking back, this person is not fit for the kingdom. Not just an occasional glance, but a keep looking back. So why does the person constantly look back? You know why? Because their heart's still back there. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. And where your heart is, that's where your eyes are going to go. And if your eyes go there, you're not going to be going straight. You're going to be going off somewhere else. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, where our eyes go? If you don't, the, guys, the ladies do. They notice our eyes. What are your excuses? See, I, I, here's the thing. I think one of the, the thing about Christians, why it is so hard sometimes for some people to find the Lord is because Christians are just going around in circles. How can they follow them to Christ when they're going all over the place? Some straight furrows would sure help them get there. So let's talk about excuses real quick because we kind of come around the corner here and head toward the finish line. Luke 9, 57, 58. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds have airs, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the comfortable Christian. Say comfortable Christian. So he's walking along the road, following Jesus, caught up in the euphoria, a little excited, seeing the signs, wonders, and miracles. He's, man, he's excited. And he just kind of blurts out, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Immediately, Jesus goes for the heart. He says, are you sure? What if it gets a little uncomfortable? What if you don't have your blanket and your pillow with you? Are you going to be able to follow me then? You know, I, I love my bed and I love my pillow. I'll take my pillow with me most of the time. I even find myself negotiating with God. Sometimes we're planning a mission trip with the youth or somebody. I'm thinking, okay, I'll go. If there's a hotel close by with AC, as long as I can sleep good and eat good. Those two things. And I can deal with everything else. You know, I kind of find, you know, even Adam negotiated with God. God said, Adam, I see you need a companion. I'm going to give you a beautiful woman. One that will never talk back. Do everything you want. Do your every need. It will just cost you an arm and a leg. He said, what can I get for a rib? Anyhow, moving right along. Let's hide behind the cross here for a minute. You know, I remember a summer, it was in 1998, as youth pastor, and we had been some events uh, by a, an organization called Rock the Nations, and they were powerful events, I felt like the Lord, man, we need to go that, but it's in Colorado Springs, two-day drive, we, whoop, whoop, Ty, we had to sleep in tents, and we were supposed to fast three days. Now, I'm thinking, how can you sell that to a youth group, junior high and high school? Maybe the sleeping in tents for them, not for me, but fasting and me driving the bus two days. And so I just said, okay, we'll find something else. I go six, seven months, and we come, none of the camps are working out. We got down a month out, and I said, okay, Lord. It was just like, we need to do this. And I'm telling you, that was one of the toughest summers that my family and I had. I started off the summer doing an outreach down in the projects, and I was doing this power feet, breaking this stack of bricks. I hit it. The bricks didn't break, but my arm did. 
So I had a cast most of the summer. I built a zip line for my son. He fell off of it, broke his ankle. On the way to Rockton, and then also at the end of the summer, my daughter had to have major surgery um, in a situation. And then when we're driving the bus to go to Colorado, on the way there, I have my wife's not feeling good, and she's pregnant at the time, and I stop at a truck stop, and she has a miscarriage at a truck stop. And most of the kids didn't even know that. And we got to get back on the bus and keep rolling. I remember sitting at a stoplight in the bus, the old bus, the air conditioner barely working, and I come to a stoplight, and we're sitting there, and I'm kind of feeling like beat up, and I'm thinking, and I look over, and what do I see? But my eyes behold, a Harley-Davidson shop, and I think, how much credit do I have on my credit card? And I just picture myself walking in there, picking one out, swiping my card, kind of driving by the bus, honking and waving goodbye. Anybody been there before? But you know what? You know, I wasn't going to go back to that old life. It had nothing for me. And, you know, it was one of the best camps we ever went to. I mean, God just blessed our family that summer, and just in every way the enemy tried to seal, God restored. But sometimes, you know, we don't want to serve because, you know, we don't want to get out of our comfort zone. Next excuse. Isaiah 59, or um, verse 59 of Luke 17. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, this is the convenient Christian. Say convenient Christian. See, it's not Jesus not unsympathetic with family situations. I mean, he preaches about it. He tells us to have, you know, things in order, honor father and mother. But there's a good chance he was saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. And there's two scenarios with this dead father. First of all, he actually had died, but you know they had a custom that they would wait a year and then take the bones and they would put them in a little casket and then go bury them. So it was a whole year ritual process thing. So it could have been, you know, I just want to delay and do that. Or it could be that the father had not died. Maybe not on his, maybe not even on his last leg, but he's saying, you know, Jesus, if I could just go back, you hang around the house, tie up some things. When my dad dies, I get the inheritance. I'm going to have some money. Man, I get some money, I can serve you. You know, I get that bonus at work, I can start tithing then. I can't, you, if you can't tithe with your minimum payment job, how are you going to tithe when the Lord really blesses you? The convenient Christian. And as long as it's convenient, I'll serve you. Look at the last excuse, verse 61. And to another he said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me go first and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This was the compromising Christian. Say compromising Christian. See, notice I said, permit me. He was making bargains with the master. Uh, his problem is he was looking for an excuse not to follow. He wanted to keep his options open. See, the compromising Christian gets real excited, and then all of a sudden you don't see him for a while. They're kind of just off doing something else. They get distracted real easy. And you'll notice it didn't say he went back to say goodbye to his family. He went back to say goodbye to those who were at his house, his homies. He wanted to go hang with his homies one more night, maybe have a few brewskis, play the new Xbox One game, you know, and just have, you know, kind of. But the, really the bottom line, he knows if he gets around some soulish people, they're going to talk him out of it. Oh, you don't want to do that. Uh, that just... Uh. See, Jesus goes right for the heart, doesn't he? Because he knows we're not going to be satisfied unless we're doing what he's called us to do, what he equipped us, what he built us to do. As we close, we need to burn some bridges from 2013. 
Some of us in here, maybe more than others. And listen to this last uh, little verse about Elisha. 1 Kings 19, 19. So he departed from there, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plying with 12 yoke of oxen before him and was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him, threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I'll follow you. And he said to them, go back again for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people in the eight, and he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. See, for Elijah, or Elisha, there was no going back. He burned his very livelihood. He burnt the oxen, or the, the plow. He fed, the, gave the oxen away, killed them, burned them. I mean, he burned it every temptation to go back there. See, he's, it was different than saying, I'm going to go say goodbye to my family. I mean, he said goodbye because he was going to follow. Because he looked forward to what God had in store for him. As a matter of fact, Elijah did twice the miracles Elijah did. So here's a real quick close with five points. They're going to be up on the screen real quick and we're going to be done. It's almost 2014. I've been talking about not going back, but I want to finish by saying, go forward. Let's say that together. Go forward. Jesus is saying, follow me in 2014. So number one, put your hand to the plow. I mean, put your hand to the plow. Pick up your cross. Put your hand to the plow. Find out what he wants to do. Serve him. Do the work of the ministry he has for you. Find a place to serve this year. Don't sit here another year and just let everybody else do it. Find a place to serve. Do something for God. Number two, burn any bridges of your old life. Burn the bridge of temptation. Burn the bridge of condemnation. Burn the bridge of regret. Burn the, burn the bridge of shame and guilt. Burn the bridge of past failures. The Apostle Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing on to the mark of the high calling. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Number three, don't look back. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't underestimate the power of God and what the power of God can do through you. Don't question God. Don't wonder what if. And number four, Keep plowing. I mean, just put your hands on there. Make a mark in this world. Turn some things upside down for the kingdom of God. Don't quit. And you know what helped me not to quit and what helped me to really be able to pick up this cross and begin to follow was being baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Sometimes we talk about speaking in tongues. It's almost talking about an alternative lifestyle. Oh, we can't go there. We'll offend people. It's in the Word. Don't get so hung up on the tongues. Get hung up on the power to be a witness. I mean, somebody prayed for me in a Bible study. We were talking about the Holy Spirit. And the guy kind of put a hand on me and said, you want more of God, aren't you? I thought, wow, how do you know that? And that was it. He prayed. I heard him speak in tongues. It didn't freak me out. I just felt the presence of God begin to come over me. And, you know, I wasn't afraid to witness to people. I was always going back to my old lifestyle and following friends. But when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, the next day I witnessed to my neighbor, and he went to church and got saved that week. I'm telling you, I was just able to pick it up and just follow him. It'll help. You need the power if you're going to do this. You can't do it on your own. And number five, look forward. Because when you look forward, it produces straight rows. It produces rewards. It keeps you going in the right direction when you look forward. And it makes your life worth living. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we don't want to be 
like the comfortable Christian and just serve you and do things when it's comfortable for us. Or we don't want to be the convenient Christian and just kind of on our schedule and, and just when it's convenient. And, and Lord, we don't want to be a compromising Christian and constantly compromising our values when we get around certain people or situations. Lord, we want to be a fully devoted follower of your. Lord, that's my prayer. And I pray it's a prayer for the rest of the people in this room. In Jesus' name. Okay, everybody look at me. Before we go, I want to ask one question. If you died today, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Are you fit for the kingdom of God? Do you qualify to enter into heaven? We can't qualify on how much good or bad we do. We're qualified that when God looks at us, that the blood of Jesus covers us. That means we accepted Him as Lord and Savior. We've turned our back on the world. I'm not saying we're perfect. And we might, and we might trip and fall down, but we get back up and we go back toward the cross. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, in a minute I'm going to count to three and you get an opportunity to raise your hand. You're not voting for me. What you're doing is say, Lord Jesus, I want to give you permission to come into my life. And maybe some of you, you've made a statement like that, but you've gotten off track. And you want to start, finish the end of this year and start the new year with a fresh commitment to Christ. And you want to invite Him into your life. And not just invite Him in, but begin to follow Him. So on the count of three, it's your choice. If you want to make Jesus Lord of your life, if you want to invite Him in your life, He's not going to force His way in. And I'm not forcing anything on you. I'm just presenting the Word and how it changed my life. And it's up to you. On the count of three, you hold your hand up. And if you do, we're going to say a prayer for you. One, two, three. See your hand? See your hand, your hand, and your hand. Anybody else? See your hand back there. God bless you. See yours over there. See yours there. Anybody else? See yours. Amen. I see some back there. Amen. I see some new faces, so maybe some dedica free, fresh dedication. In just a moment, they're going to start to sing. Our altar team's coming up. Now, when our altar team comes up, if you need prayer for anything, you come on up. Heal, sick in your body. But there's some of you that really need to get out of your chair because by getting out of your chair, you're making a statement. I'm walking away from some things in 2013. I'm walking away from attitudes, some regrets, some situations. And I'm just going to, and some of you, maybe you'll have somebody pray with you. Some of you just may need to come and just stand a little bit and just tell the Lord, hey, here I am. Set me on fire for the new year. And he'll do that. He'll honor your prayer. But when we stand up and our altar teams come forward, I want everyone that raised your hand to come meet me at that cross. We're going to say a prayer together. Matter of fact, the whole church, we might say a prayer. But let's go ahead and stand on our feet. If you'll sing once, if you raised your hand, meet me at the altar. Anybody else come to the altar team? I'm going to have a team over here. Those that raised their hand, give them a hand clap as they come. Thank you, Jesus. Never fails and never gives up and never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up and never runs out on me. Your love never fails and never gives up and never runs out on me. Hey, why don't we just kind of focus over here on the cross for just a moment. And let's all say this prayer together. You know, it's not so much the words of the prayer, but what you're doing is just allowing the Lord to come into your heart. So just repeat after me, the whole congregation. And there could be somebody out there, you know you need to be up here. 
When we say this prayer, it says if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from dead, that's when you can have eternal life. And so when you confess, something might happen. Faith might arise, and you need to come up here too. Let's say this together. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. I give you permission to come into my life, to change me. I'm going to need your power to help me follow you. So baptize me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him a hand clap. Amen.